Good morning, church. Well, that was pathetic. Rough, rough start to the message. Good morning, church. There we go. There we go. Act like the 11 o'clock I slept in people that you are, right? Uh, Some of you served at 9 o'clock. God bless you. It's good. Good to be with you today. We are in Acts 15. Um, And I want to start with this little statement here. It is when, not if. It is when, not if. Good? It is when, not if. It is guaranteed. It is a certainty. It is a sure bet. It is as sure, as they say, as death and taxes. Know what it is? Conflict and controversy in the church. Conflict and controversy in the church. Now, there are people who believe, we're saying, of course, we're making the point here that that's sure, that's going to happen. If you're in a church, at some point, there's going to be controversy, there's going to be conflict. And there are people, um, and I've met such people, who believe that the church, because we have Jesus, because we have the Word of God, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, that somehow, because of those things, the church ought to be perfect, that it ought to be conflict-free that the church ought to be smashing home runs every time it comes to the plate. That a church in crisis, in fact, they go further to say that a church in crisis lacks, reflects a lack of holiness and an absence of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think I'm just making that up, but I've actually lived that out. And during a particularly difficult challenge in our church uh, some 15 years ago, a departing member um, Myself and another leader sat in in their living room, and this departing member told me um, that the Holy Spirit had left harvest. That's a quote. The Holy Spirit had left harvest. And I appreciated his candor, and I feared for his arrogance, because it's a terrible thing to make a presumption that you know when and where the Holy Spirit is actually working. But to believe that goes beyond just what we believe about the church. If that's the principle, that as soon as there's a controversy, as soon as there's a crisis, the Holy Spirit is out. If you believe that and apply that to the individual believer, you have a problem. To believe that about the church is also to believe that trials in an individual Christian's life reflect a lack of devotion to Jesus and the absence of the Holy Spirit. And that's foolish and unbiblical. And so, over the next four weeks, that's, that's obviously the intro to what we're going to be looking at in the next four messages. And we're going to see in Acts 15, the entirety of that chapter, plus a little bit of chapter 16, we're going to see the church as a whole, not just an individual local church, but the church as a whole on the precipice of a widespread crisis, what Luke calls in our reading today, uh, no small dissension. And it's rooted in theology, but it impacted the praxis of the church. And it threatened to rip the church apart and disrupt the mission. And that's going to cover the first three messages. In the fourth message, we'll look at a separate conflict, what Luke calls a sharp disagreement that came between the church's two most prominent leaders, Paul and Barnabas. 
And as we examine these two crises, we'll be called upon uh, to respond biblically when conflict, when conflict and crises hit the church. Because, and the reason why we need to hear this ahead of time, it's because it's so tempting for us, it's so tempting for us even as Christians to allow our, our opinions and our emotions and our relationships with people to steer our response. But we have to resist that temptation and we have to make sure that we are aligned with God's word. Now, I want to assure you, I'm not preaching this message because I feel like there's some controversy or conflict that's looming in our church or one that's currently happening. That's not the case. One uh, elder said to me this week, I sure hope this isn't prophetic. And I said, amen, I sure hope it's not prophetic. But it's good to work this stuff out ahead of time, amen? Let's get it locked in ahead of time because when it happens, we're gonna need to know the biblical principles that we're hearing today about how to deal with it. And so let's, um, let's get aligned with God's word. Let's start by hearing God's word. This is Acts 15. I'm gonna read the first 11 verses. You follow along in your Bible. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers." When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. All right, when conflict and controversy hit the church, uh, what's my response going to be? What's your response going to be? That's what we're going to see in the text here. And the first thing is, um, I will recognize the error. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recognize what the actual controversy or conflict is, and we're going to discern that error if we're savvy in the Word of God. We have to know the Word of God in order to recognize what the conflict really is. And the principle here is that you're always going to know a counterfeit by studying the real thing. To the extent that we study the Word of God, we're going to be able to discern what the problems are that are plaguing a given church in conflict or crisis. We have to know the Word. 
Now, in chapter 15, the first 35 verses, we just looked at 11, and we're going to look at 11 this morning, but in the first 35 verses of this chapter, this represents a major shift in the mission. If you've been studying Acts all the way along with us, you know that there's a transition that has been taking place for the last several chapters. It started in chapter 10, and that transition period is ending in chapter 15, and by chapter 16 on, we're going to see a very different emphasis. In the first nine chapters of Acts, it was Peter and his ministry, and everything was focused on Jerusalem. And then in chapter 10, we saw a change happening, and Peter has, we're going to talk about it in a moment, but Peter has this encounter with Cornelius, who's a Gentile, a Roman soldier, and, and, and we're going to see God opening up the mission beyond Jerusalem. And in chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and 13, and we saw uh, it beginning to move out, and now with this council to resolve this, this conflict and this controversy in the church, this is the period at the end of the transition uh, the transition sentence, the, the, at the end of the sentence that marks the transition between these two periods. From now on, we're going to see Paul's work, not Peter's, and we're going to see an emphasis on the work among Gentiles, not the Jews and not Jerusalem. And that's why, why is that important? That's important because that's what this dissension is all about. That's why this debate is so important because it relates directly to the ministry of the Gentiles, which is going to occupy the balance of the book of Acts um, from here on out. And so verse one, notice this, some men from Judea, they show up in Antioch and they start to teach Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's a, quite a declaration. It stands uh, right in the face of the gospel that uh, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching. And in essence, what they're saying is that you have to be uh, circumcised before you can be baptized. And if some of you are sitting here going, like, I've been following the whole series, and uh, that sounds familiar to me. Like, that sounds like something we've already talked about. And again, if you go back to chapters 10 and 11, this is exactly the situation that Peter was facing. God had moved him. The Holy Spirit had worked. He went down to Caesarea. He met with this man, Cornelius. He was a Gentile, a Roman soldier. And when Cornelius and his household came to faith in Christ and were baptized, there were people at that time when Peter reported in Jerusalem who were saying, but what about circumcision? How come they weren't circumcised first? In other words, what they believed was in order to become a Christian, if you were a Gentile, in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. And then you needed to continue to observe all the things that Jews were observing. And that was a problem. But it is a legit question. And it is something that had to be worked out in the church. You have to look at it from the vantage point of these Jews who had seen a radical shift in how they expressed their faith. This was a challenge for them because there had been such a radical change. They had gone from strict adherence to their Jewish faith to a gospel that told them that this 2,000-year-old rite of circumcision that was given to Abraham and the 1,400-year-old Mosaic law that had been given to them, that those things were no longer necessary. And yet these were things that were ingrained in the psyche of the Jewish people, embedded in their culture. Jesus prepared them for this, though. He said in Matthew 5, 17, he said, I do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, Jesus said, but I've come to fulfill them. 
They needed to hear this. And, and in order for us to understand exactly what parts are abolished and what parts are fulfilled for us to understand what's going on here, you need to understand that as you're reading the Old Testament, there's two aspects to the law. There's the moral aspect of the Old Testament law, and there's a ceremonial or ritualistic aspect of the law. And the moral aspect is what reflects the very character of God. We can read the Old Testament, and we do read it, and we, and we see in its pages the very character of the God that we love and worship. It reflects who he is. But then we also see these ceremonies that God gave to the Jewish people. The ceremonial aspects of the law, sacrifices, offerings, dietary restrictions, special days that they had to, be, um, that they had to observe. All of which, these ceremonial aspects, all of which were fulfilled in Jesus Christ at his coming and in his sacrifice. He was the final sacrifice for sin. And in that, in that giving of his life, he uh, fulfilled, completed all the ceremonial aspects of the law so that they no longer needed to be performed. And of course, Jesus Christ himself embodied the beauty of the character of God. And so the moral aspects of the law were in him, fulfilled in Jesus by who he was. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus, both in the moral aspects and the ceremonial aspects. But these Jewish Christians had missed that part and were insistent on Gentile converts conforming to Jewish rites. And that was an error, and that's what we're talking about here. How do we discern the error? This right here, because it speaks to the very heart of the gospel and how people get saved, this right here was the error that could not be ignored and had to be dealt with. I read an article this week, and the author used this phrase. He, he, he talked about horizontal hostility. Horizontal hostility. You know, this, this is a, a relationship, but the relationship I have with you and that you have with each other, these are horizontal relationships in the church. The relationships that you have in your families, the relationships that we as Christians have with non-Christians outside of the church, these are all horizontal relationships relationships, and, and, and at times these relationships, these horizontal relationships can become hostile. And the author was particularly pointing out the horizontal hostility among Christians. Say it isn't so, Todd. Christians getting upset with each other? Nah, that never happens, does it? Horizontal hostility among Christians. That is to say the controversies that we as Christians get caught up in. And the author suggested in this article, rightly suggested, that some of these controversies, these horizontal uh, hostilities are actually killing the church, his phrase. And indeed, there are many controversies and conflicts between believers that result in the church being off message and off mission. And I'll grant that, that many issues that are now argued in the public sphere of social media and the internet are indeed detrimental to the message and mission that we have in the world. And I don't think I need to remind us, but you just need to go back a couple of years to that pandemic that we went through, and the pandemic accentuated this nonsense because there were Christians dividing and getting angry over and creating controversies about things that were non-gospel issues. And there was so much vitriol and so much anger between Christians. And there's still Christians who won't talk to each other today. And families were divided and churches were split over this, over non-gospel issues. 
And by the way, as Christians were fighting about this stuff, non-Christians were watching because we were dumb enough to do it on the internet, which like, I've heard everybody has access to. Other issues must be discussed and debated because the integrity of the gospel hangs in the balance. And that's the error that we need to discern. Not all errors can be or should be avoided. Not all controversies or conflicts can be or should be avoided. Where there is error of a primary nature, something that relates to the gospel itself, something that's necessary to believe for salvation, then it must be settled. We need to get in a room and fix it. Those matters of a secondary or tertiary issue that we're fighting over, grace, grace, and and respectful disagreement, respectful disagreement. I'm naive enough to think that that's possible. And that's really a call for us, see this next, that's a call for us to respond appropriately. You see, when Paul and Barnabas heard them teach, so here's the thing, like they're all in the church in Antioch, they're super happy about everything that had happened on that first missionary journey that we've just been studying, all the people that got saved, all the people baptized, all the churches established, the leaders who were appointed, I mean, a lot had been accomplished in that mission. And people in, in, in Antioch were so happy about the whole thing. And they were teaching that. And then this group shows up and calls it out. And verse 2 says, there was no small dissension. And I love the way Luke worded that with understatement. There was, he didn't say there was a huge dissension. He said, there's no small dissension, which we all know is there was a huge dissension. (laughs) By the way, the word dissension here, uh, translated in other um, Other translations as dispute or argument. One lexicon defines it this way, to engage in intense and emotional expressions. Notice, notice these words, intense and emotional expressions of different opinions. It means to quarrel. And that's what what Luke is telling us is happening in Antioch. Another uh, lexicon says that it is a lack of agreement respecting policy leading to strife and, and discord and disunity. Now, and I can understand this. Because, because what we're doing here in the church of Jesus Christ is of eternal consequence. This isn't like some community um, a, a social group. This isn't a club. It's not a service club here. This is the church of the living God. We've been given a mandate to tell people about our Savior and to ensure that they could uh, spend eternity with Him. We're seeking to help people find the forgiveness of their sins, and it matters. And that explains why there's so much passion attached to these things, because it matters more than anything else in the world, it matters. What we're doing here today in, in, in once again proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than, what it ha- than what's happening in Ottawa or Washington, D.C. or Moscow or London or any capital city and any parliament in the world. This is important and that's why there's so much passion attached to it. It's about convictions about God and eternity. 
So Luke said there was no small dissension, and he stacks another word, and he says, and there's no small debate. A very similar word, meaning Paul and Barnabas, one commentator says, we're having a controversial discussion, a forceful argument with these who had come to oppose them. And again, this is happening at the Antioch church up in Syria. But it was evident that the view was widespread enough that it needed to be addressed at the mother church in Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders. This would have wide sweeping effect. And it would ensure if they went to Jerusalem and talked this out, it, it would ensure that whatever was decided would be passed along to all the churches and would become the standard for mission work around the world. It would settle the issue. But it required them to take an active move towards settling it. And, and that passivity wasn't going to be helpful. And some of us, I get it, like some of us are more passive when it comes to stuff like this. And we would go, oh, you know what, just let them have their say and then they'll go away and they won't come back again and we can just do our thing again and just kind of like passively allow it to happen without addressing the error that was in play. And there's no room for passivity here. It had to be settled. And so they appointed, you notice here, they appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others, verse two, latter part of verse two, uh, to go up to Jerusalem uh, about this particular question. And I, I understand people's aversion to controversy and, and conflict. I, I get that it can become so intense. In fact, in this particular case, it's, it's easy to want to kind of take the path of least resistance here. If, if you read, there's a, in, in Galatians chapter 2, if you're taking notes, just, just jot down that reference, Galatians chapter 2, Paul's writing to the believers in Galatia, and he'd already been to that area, but in Galatians 2, he's talking about a council that happened in Jerusalem, and it's quite possible he's talking about this council that we're going to read about in chapter 15 of Acts. It's possible he's talking about a different council. We're not quite sure on the timelines of when it happened. What is interesting in the Galatians 2 account is Paul says that even as we were dealing with this issue, issue, and it was so clear that Gentiles shouldn't have this put upon them, Paul says both Barnabas, his missionary partner on those trips, and Peter, the great apostle from Jerusalem, both of them had shrunk back under the weight and burden of this conflict and had stopped having fellowship with Gentiles. They were allowing these Judaizers to put pressure on them to respond in an unbiblical way. We're talking about, so we're saying to us, you know, I don't really like conflict. Well, look, Barnabas and Peter didn't like it either. And they ended up making a very bad decision that Paul calls them out for. We can't underestimate the intensity of these issues. We can't go into them unprepared, unaware of what's going to happen. Hard decisions have to be made at such times. People will get upset because they have to be challenged about the truth. Relationships will be put to the test and at times severed. And emotional responses, if we let them, will get in the way of rational, rational decisions that have to be made. And it's remarkable how quickly, and I've seen this, it's remarkable how quickly a Christian will jettison their theology in order to save a relationship. 
Oh, I believe this and I'm firm on it and it's my conviction. But I want to lose this relationship, so I'm, I'm just going to move over here. And they let go of what they said they believed so vehemently in order to preserve a human relationship. And the right response here was to refer to the, and I love that they did this, the right response here was to refer the matter to Jerusalem, to appeal in essence to a respected authority, the apostles and the elders outside of this one local church in Antioch. That's what they did. And you know, as a church um, going on uh, seven years ago now, the fellowship that we were a part of the that, that from, our, from our founding that came to an end in 2017. Uh, there was a crisis and a controversy that happened there and our fellowship ended. And we knew that we needed to be part, our elders were so convicted that we needed to be part of another network of churches and we worked very hard over the next few years in order to find the right network that would fit with who we are and we would fit with who they were. And part of the reason for that is when your church has a crisis, you want to make sure that you're in relationship with other mature churches so that when something happens here, you can appeal out to other leaders and say to them, would you come and help us? We've done that in our past. We've done that for other churches. And we needed those relationships. And that's exactly what existed. It was a relationship between Antioch and Jerusalem. And Antioch said, you know what? We're not going to figure this one out here. We need Jerusalem to help us figure it out. And again, that's what they did. Now, as this is all going down, what's awesome about this is there was a firm commitment. Even while controversy is happening and there's a conflict in the church, there was a firm commitment to remain on mission. This controversy swirling about, but they're not forgetting that they're still charged with telling people about Jesus and, 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 and helping them understand the gospel and receive it. So Paul and Barnabas and this entourage are being sent, verse 3 here, being sent on their way by the church, and they're going to go from Antioch down uh, to Jerusalem. And I'm, I need to apologize at this point because I, I don't have a map for you today. I know, I know. There's a lot of disappointment about that. I've, 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 um, I've conditioned you uh, toward maps, and it's just a failure on my part. So being sent on their way by the church, okay, they're going to go from Antioch uh, down to Jerusalem, and it's, it's actually, uh, Antioch is up in the north, uh, close to the Mediterranean coast in Syria, and it's almost a straight shot south along what's called the Via Maris, uh, the road that would hug the coast of the Mediterranean. They would go through a little bit of Syria and Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and then into Samaria. And then they would make their way. You'll often see in the scriptures, they, they went up to Jerusalem. And the reason why is because Jerusalem is nestled up in the Judean hills. And so they would go up uh, to Jerusalem inland uh, toward uh, the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And so that was the route that they would have uh, taken uh, to get there, 400 kilometers uh, would have uh, taken them the better part of a month to make that uh, journey. And the text tells us in verse 3 that they passed through both Phoenicia, Lebanon, and Samaria, and it's no surprise that they capitalize on the fact that they're on this journey and passing through all these towns and villages and cities, and they're going to visit them all in the churches that are in all these places. It says, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. I'm going to go and tell them about their stories, the, the, the trip they took to, to Cyprus and to uh, Pisidia and Pamphylia and, and everything that God had done on that trip. 
And it brought, notice, uh, the end of verse 3 says, it brought great joy to all the folks in all those churches. They were so encouraged to hear how the gospel was spreading and how churches were being established. Now, the first thing they did, verse 4, the first thing they did when they get to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. So everybody's all together, one big meeting, verse 4. And it says that they declared all that God had done with them in this mission to the Gentiles. So they're going to do in Jerusalem what they had been doing along the whole journey. They're telling the story of this mission. And see that Paul was careful to point to God as the power behind everything that was happening. He's not taking any glory for himself or for Barnabas. He said all that God had done, that God is the one who was saving people. And all glory and honor was to him. Now, I want to admit that that was awesome for them to do that because in their minds, they're like, oh, this is so upsetting and the gospel's in peril and the mission might come to an end and we got to get to Jerusalem. Let's get there as fast as we can. Let's just really focus on the conflict and the controversy. Let's make sure our arguments are all said and we'll just go over that. And they could have, they could have just made their way straight to Jerusalem. But they knew we're on mission. We could encourage the believers. We could tell other people about the gospel and they wanted to make sure that they were on mission throughout. And I have to admit, that's hard. I mean, I've been through seasons where there was conflict in the church and it's hard not to allow that to overshadow everything else. I mean, I'm, if, you, if you know me at all, you know, like I'm a systems guy and I like, I like policies, I like procedure, I like my team to be in a good place. We have certain ways of doing things. I like when it's just humming along beautifully. And, and when conflict comes into it, I find it to be so distracting because a part of, the, part of the machine, if I can use that illustration, part of the machine's broken. It's clunking. And that's all I can think about. And it can pull me away from the thing that I should be focused on such crises can easily distract from the main thing. I referred already to a crisis that happened in our church 15 years ago, and there are many in our church who were part of our church back then and will remember uh, this, at least uh, some of it, unless the Lord has blessed you by purging your memory of it. Um, but we faced a crisis that threatened to rip the church apart, and in some senses it did rip the church apart, in fact, and after the, the worst of it, I, I met with, and, and this is something that lasted, really there was a lead up to it and there was a crisis moment and then there was an aftermath and it took us a while uh, to recover from it and really we measured that whole crisis in the space of uh, three years really, not, it wasn't a short period of time, it wasn't weeks or months, but years that we went through that. But, it, but after the worst of it, I met with the staff team and I said, um, there's no long-term vision for us. There's, there's no like, there's no one-year vision. There's no, there's no, um, there's no five-year plan. Uh, we're now we're now on a on a seven-day plan. We have, we have a vision. We have a vision for the next seven days, and and that's it. We're, we're no longer in vision mode. We're in we're in survival mode. But we have Sunday coming. So, so what we do have is this seven-day vision, and we're going to put what energy we have, which didn't seem like a lot, and, and we're going to put it all into Harvest Kids this week, and we're going, to, we're going to worship God as best we can, and we're going to hear from the Word of God as best we can, and we're going to pray together, 
and we're going to welcome each other in fellowship together on Sunday, and, and then we're going to rest on Monday, and on Tuesday, we're going to aim for the next Sunday. And that's it. We didn't even plan six Sundays ahead like we normally do. We, we, we just were trying to make it through one week at a time. And despite the devastation of what happened, we instinctively knew, or at least by the power of the Spirit, we knew that we needed to stay on mission. We needed to gather people, God's people together for worship, and we needed to proclaim the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, that first Sunday, it was so horrible for all of us. It was a terrible Sunday. It was the worst Sunday I have ever experienced as a Christian, as a Christian leader. And some of you who are around in those days might even remember that Sunday as being a very terrible, awful, not-to-be-remembered Sunday. But there was a couple visiting for the first time that week, and they were believers from another community in the county, and they were looking for a new church for, for whatever reason. They were looking for a new church. And when I met them after the service, they said, this church is amazing. We love it. And the first thought that came to my mind was, how bad was your last church <laughs> that you think this is amazing? Now listen, that only happens. You remember Paul gave the credit to God, what God had done. The reports were about what God had done. And in the midst of the worst season of our lives, the worst thing that I would ever want to go through, the worst Sunday that I could ever imagine, God reminded us that it was his church. God reminded us that he was gonna work even through our brokenness, even though we were shattered, even though we, we couldn't think further than seven days ahead, God said, you know what, I'm gonna show you something. And during that whole period of time, that whole period of trauma and the recovery, we saw people saved and people were baptized and ministry continued to happen and new people came to our church and helped us recover. And God was glorified in the midst of it because he did the work. And I would say this, when human frailty fouls up a situation, which often happens, count on God coming through as a light in the darkness. God has given us a mission, and conflict doesn't rescind that mission. So we're on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances around us are. We're on a mission to live for him individually and as a church as best we can. We're on a mission to love God and love people. I know that because we put it on the wall in the West Lobby. And, and while we're doing that and staying on gospel mission, we also need to deal with the crisis. And we need to, in, in so doing, we need to, notice this next, respect the process. There needs to be a process to work through this, and we need to have respect for that process as we work through it. So this, this entourage has come down from Antioch, and they're with the church in Jerusalem, and they're sharing stories about the mission. They're telling them, these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, and we were baptizing them and organizing them into churches and appointing leaders for them, and it was awesome to see. And as they're telling these stories to the Jerusalem church, in verse five, believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, 
Remember that group from the Gospels, the Pharisees? Remember that group? Nothing but bad press in the Gospels for the Pharisees. They're always on the wrong side of every discussion. And here we, here we find now some of the Pharisees, verse 5 tells us, some of the Pharisees had become believers. So, so a side note here as we read this is awesome, awesome that some of the Pharisees became believers, unawesome that they didn't understand the grace of the gospel. And yes, unawesome is a word. It's here in my manuscript, so <laughs> it must be a word. So these guys, these Pharisees who are not fully understanding, they're believers, but they're not fully understanding the grace of God. They stand up, they rise up at what Paul and Barnabas are sharing, and they start making their argument. And they're provoking, they're provoking the crisis. Or, 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 or Paul and Barnabas are by telling their stories, or these guys are by objecting to them. But they disagreed with how they had conducted their mission among the Gentiles. So they rose up, they started making their argument, precisely when Paul and Barnabas were sharing about all these awesome things that were happening, and they were very clear and very concise about their objection. Here's what they say. This is the latter part of verse 5. They said, it is necessary, so categorical, they say, it is necessary, two things they say, to circumcise them, to circumcise these Gentiles who get saved, and secondly, to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they need to perform the initial rite of circumcision, and then they need to, in an ongoing way, follow the rules of Judaism, the Old Testament. And by them laying this out, what they're really saying is they're standing up, they're objecting to what Paul and Barnabas are saying, and they're saying, let's get into it right now, since you're sharing your stories, let's get into it, and here's our objection. And so what happens next is, because they're in front of the whole congregation, the apostles and the elders take aside the Antioch delegation and these Pharisees, and that group goes off to discuss this apart from the congregation. They're now going to go into like this closed door session to figure this out. They gather together, verse 6 says, to consider this matter. And saying, in essence, we're going to go into a room with the key players, we're going to get this settled. And what we see in the rest of the account is um, Peter representing the apostles. We'll look at this in a few moments. He speaks. So Peter speaks on behalf of the apostles. That's what we're going to see in verses 7 through 11 in a moment. Then next week, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas address the council in verse 12. And then James, who's the half-brother of Jesus and, and the, the key elder, the chief elder of the church in Jerusalem, he's representing the elders of the Jerusalem church. He's going to speak in verses 13 through 21. And then he's going to provide the judgment over all of this in verses 19 and 20. Now, others may have spoken to this as well, but these are, the, these are the highlights that Luke provided for us. And then in verses 22 through 35, what we read is we're going to write a letter, and they write the letter, and we have the, we have the text of the letter, and then the letter was sent out to the churches, and what we find next is the result of that letter going out and this issue being settled is that peace uh, was seen all over the church. They experienced peace as a result of doing the hard work of going through this process and resolving this controversy. 
Now, I think if you go through all of this, you get an understanding of this. This probably wasn't a quick meeting. Respecting the process. Engaging in humble, courteous dialogue was essential if the matter was to be resolved. And I think about that for us as Christians because I I think about how simple that is and how reflective that is of biblical principle, that we would respect the process, that we would engage in humble, courteous dialogue. And I think about how we're not very good at that. And that some of us are even sitting here right now going, I don't even know what the definition of courteous is. I've never even heard that word before. Because we're so bad at this. And this, this is what's absent, this courteousness, this humility, is what's absent from so much conflict today. Even as Christians, we seem to have lost our capacity to be respectful of those that we disagree with. And if anyone should set the example of this, it ought to be those who are Christ's, don't you think? I mean, you think about outside the church, that's one thing. If people outside the church are contentious with one another, the right and the left are contentious with one another, they get angry with one another. But that ought not to be us. Christians ought to be able to respectfully disagree with one another. We should be setting the example and people should be seeing Christ in us. And we'll only get this We'll only get to that place where we can respect the process and govern ourselves in this way if we return to the word. And that's the last thing in our outline here. If we return to the word. The word that Peter uh, received in the encounter with Cornelius, to come back to that in chapters 10 and 11, this provided the principles by which the current conflict would be understood. And that's why Peter speaks first. This conflict needed to be understood. It needed to be resolved. And Peter had an experience that was going to help them with that. And so we're going to talk about a return to the word because that's what Peter did. He returned to a word that he received from the Lord. Next week, that's going to come up again. Pastor Nathan's going to take us through the next uh, section. He's going to help us to understand that we need to believe and apply the teaching of God's word when we get into these situations. So verse 7, after much debate, Peter said that God chose him, God chose him to be the one to kind of go right into a Gentile's home and to, and to kind of break the ice on this. God chose him so that the Gentiles, verse 7, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And this is why this is a primary issue. Because it's about the gospel. It's about how we come to believe in Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's understanding the simplicity of what we preach. That Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came to earth, took on human form, gave his life on the cross to cleanse us of our sins, and was raised from the dead to provide us life apart from any effort on our, of our own. That's entirely of Jesus. A Gentile didn't need to become a Jew to become a Christian. That would be our works. That would be to abandon Christ. Verse 8, Peter says, God knows the heart, and it's the heart where God does the work to save us. 
echoing what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, 9, and 10. He said, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth uh, one confesses and is saved. It's the heart where this work is done, not the outward works. God knows the heart, Peter said, and, and, and he gave them the Holy Spirit. Peter makes this observation. He gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us at Pentecost. It happened the same way, everyone. Verse 9, he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He cleanses the heart for both by faith alone. Sola fide. By faith alone. And he cautions, cautions them, warns them. Why are you putting God to the test by imposing the law of Moses on them? He says, a law that you know and I know we never kept. It was such a burden to us and we couldn't keep the law and that's precisely why we needed Jesus. And yet you want to take that yoke of the law and put it on these Gentiles. We couldn't do it. What makes you think they can? Jesus did. He took it upon himself and relieved us of the burden of carrying it. But then he says this, verse 11, but believe, this is like the capstone of his argument. He said, but believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. There's no other way to be saved. Jew, Gentile, it's by grace. Sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Now listen, the only possibility of resolving conflict in the church when it comes is to return to the word so that we hear in its pages and, its, and in its precepts the, dic, the, the terms and conditions of our response. But our temptation, as I said earlier, our temptation even as Christians is to allow other factors and not the word to inform our responses. And that's the problem. So how about a top 10 list to finish this off. You up for that? A top 10 list. The top 10 terrible ways to navigate controversy and crisis in the church. Ready? You don't know if you're ready, do you? The top 10 terrible ways to navigate controversy and crisis in the church. Number 10, a denial. Denial. We've talked about this already. The church, church shouldn't be in conflict. I just don't think the church should be in conflict. Well, that's bad theology. And so when conflict comes, what it's going to do is it's going to crush you. It's going to crush your faith because your eye is on the wrong thing. So you can't be in denial. That's a terrible way to navigate controversy and crisis. Here's a, se here's a second. Number nine, uh, being conflict averse. Oh, I, can't, I just can't handle when people fight. I can't, oh, I can't handle str stress and, and strife on people. So I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. So I don't have to go through it. I'm going to go to another church. 
that's probably going to go through it a year from now or two years from now, and you're going to have to leave again. But you can come back because we'll be through it by then. Conflict averse is so anti-Christian. You know, we're called, I was reminded by one of our elders, this great Greek word, hupomene, which is translated into English as perseverance or endurance or steadfastness. And the word means to remain under. And the whole point of being an enduring Christian or persevering Christian is whenever hard things happen, we have a temptation to want to get out from under those things. And God is saying, I want to keep you under that. So you're going to learn everything you need to learn and your faith is going to increase. Okay, that's hupomene. And so... Um, being conflict averse is not a good response. Number eight, putting relationships first. Well, I, you know, um, I mean, I don't really understand everything that's going on here, but I'm siding with so-and-so because, you know, they're friends and I just kind of trust them because they're friends and, or we're in a small group together. And again, I haven't, I haven't heard both sides on this right now, but I'm just going to go with what my small group a leader says, or I'm going to be, I'm going to stick with my family on this. I, I, you know, I have to support them in this and and you kind of blank out on actually discerning the error and trying to resolve the actual issue. And if you read the gospels, you know that Jesus said some, what some people would consider some very harsh things about family. And he said, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of my kingdom. Just jot that down as one of the hardest things Jesus ever said. And it speaks right to this number eight. Number seven, in my opinion, yeah, that's a terrible way to navigate controversy and crisis. You know what I, you know what I think of your opinion? <laughs> don't get ahead of me now, okay? I don't care about your opinion with all due respect. I don't care about your opinion, but to be fair, I don't care about my opinion either. I care about what the word of God says about this. And so let's forget about your opinion and my opinion and what you think is right and what I think is right. Let's hear what God says is right about this. So no opinions. Number six, past experience. You know, you let old wounds and traumas inform current decisions regardless of the circumstance. I've been here before. I've been here before. This is bad. And, and you let what happened before not realizing this crisis could be different. Number five, prejudices. Prejudices against certain people. Oh, you know, I always wondered about them. I kind of, I had a, I had a feeling about them. I had a, you know, remember I told you, Tim Hortons, when I, we were talking about this, and I said they were a problem. We have prejudices against certain people. We have prejudices against certain leaders. We have prejudices because people are of the wrong gender or, or the wrong race or the wrong age or we simply don't like them for whatever reason. We don't get along with them and so we allow that to inform our response and that's a terrible way to navigate controversy and crisis in the church. Can't let it be personal in that way. Number four, majority rule. Oh, you know what? But there's a huge group over here that believes a certain way about this and so many people are upset about it. And, and then we say, and that many people can't be wrong. <laughs> Booker T. Washington, a lie doesn't become truth, wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. Print that out and put it on the fridge. By the way, that, a lot of parents will like that, parents who have three or more children. 
will like that. Some of you will get that later. That's right. Number three, the loudest voice. Oh, he commands the room and he really sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And the loudest, the loudest voice is a terrible way to respond to crisis and, and controversy. Number two, emotion. I get, I get it. It makes me so sad or I'm so upset about this or I'm so angry. I just think that Christians should get along. And you know, God made us as emotional beings and emotions are part of it and, and that's fine. But we should never let our emotions lead. Our emotions should never lead. Our emotions should never lead. And also our emotions should never lead. So what do you think you're hearing from me? Amen. You preach that. Emotions never lead. And number one, the number one terrible way to navigate controversy and crisis in the church, listening to rumors and gossip. Listening to, participating in, contributing to rumors and gossip. Well, I heard from so-and-so and There's a terrible way to respond to this. You don't know what you're talking about, and you're not the one who should be communicating information, or you're just making stuff up, or you're trying to make someone else look bad, or you're trying to make yourself seem important. Then I just, just write two words if you're taking notes, just two words. Ready? Shut it. (laughs) Shut it. Those are all, those 10 are all just, terrible, terrible ways to navigate controversy and crisis in the church. And all of this, all of this is going to help you and me resolve such controversies and such conflicts when they happen, when, when, not if they happen in our church, in relationships, in all kinds of settings. Let's return to the Word of God to hear how these leaders of the church handled this. And do it in a way that honors Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, it is a joy to be able to open your word and to be able to uh, respond to it. Uh, Father, you're kind enough to speak to us, to have spoken to us in this way. And Father, I want to I thank you because this is in our church currently a a period of, of peace, and Father, we're seeing growth and new people come, and Father, we've heard testimonies of baptism. We're going to hear some more in the coming weeks of people who are coming to faith in Christ. We thank you for what's happening in Harvest Kids and in our young adults, what's happening in Harvest Youth and in our adult ministries and all of our various groups and at the bridge, and and Father, it's it's awesome to see what you're doing week by week here in our worship services, in the lobbies as people are talking and in our life groups, to see what you're doing to help us expand our reach into Alliston and through our partners around the world. And Father, it's a privilege for us to be a part of it all, to see what you're doing. We don't want anything to get in the way of that. Father, we want to commit ourselves again to having the gospel at the very center of everything that you alone would receive the glory, that we would acknowledge with every breath that what's happening here is the work of God. And we thank you, Father, for doing that and using us in this way. Help us to be committed to your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.